episode 98 of the sleeper in the bus podcast this one is a little different format because we are we will be reviewing the labor auctions that took place this past weekend in phoenix arizona Eno is uh, fortunate enough to be in the ale only auction and we'll talk to him in just a second and then afterwards Derek carty from mlb.com was nice enough to join us to break down his team and what he thought of the nl only auction that took place on saturday night by this time You've probably seen multiple results uh, of these auctions, so we just wanted to go ahead and give you some backstory and be able to see what the thought processes were between uh, for Eno and for and for Derek and their observations. We will pick up the team reviews. We have the Tigers, Twins, White Sox, and Yankees to finish. We will do those over the next two episodes. So episode 99 will be the Tigers and Twins, and 100 will be the Yankees and White Sox, and that will complete the uh, 2014 fantasy previews. With that, let's get into the only uh, draft review. What's going on? You know, you got jet lag going? Oh, I'm good. It's, you know, it's not so far for me, but uh, the, the weather did uh, put a wrench in things. And then, and then I uh, did something real stupid. I heard about I, this. <laughs> I told my family that I was uh, showing up in San Jose, and uh, then I landed in San Francisco. And nobody on the airline, nobody at any point in the process told me that I was wrong when I said anything about San Jose and or told me where I was going. So, so how's, the, how's the couch been the last couple of days? Yeah, no one's no one's happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was that. Uh, glad you made it home. But let's go over the uh, auction. First of all, your overall impression of, of how the AL only auction went. Um, you know, it's it, it was a point of contention at some point with Larry Schechter um, that uh, I said at, at some point that. Um, <clears throat> That you know, when I when I get when I got into labor was the first time I was in an auction where I where I thought you know we're all working off of my value sheet, and um, Larry thinks that there's a decent amount of um, dissent among the ranks, but I, I you know I just sort of uh, I disagree with him. Maybe it's just a question of scope and scale because I doubt he's been in a in a in a an auction league with non experts in in a long time. Um, because he was talking about there's a big difference in Miguel Cabrera um, values, and they're all like you know two three dollars apart. Uh, I don't think that's a big deal, and you know, and also you know I I see I've seen way bigger swings uh, with players in in auctions before. So once again, I got into labor, and once again, uh, it took until Jared Weaver went for eighteen dollars when I had him down for thirteen. That was the first time that anybody was more than two dollars off of my value. Yeah, we talked about this last time around, how that was – I would use the labor prices in tout because I would track to see how close things were. One of the things that I broke down – when I broke down the AL auction on, on paper, one of the things that stood out to me is that as a whole, the league threw more dollars into pitching. You look at you look at 2013, and AL tout splits were 71-29 as a league. This past weekend, you guys were 68-32, and you put more money into pitching – more than the NL side. The NL side was 71-29 as well, so they held true to theirs while you guys shifted a little bit of money over to the pitching. Is that something that you picked up on 
in the draft, or is that early, or is that something that you, as you looked at it more and more, you're like, hey, wait a second, pitching prices, you mentioned Weaver going $5 more than what you had him down for. Did you pick up on that before Weaver, or is that something that Weaver kind of woke you up to? Um, two things. I picked it up before the draft started. Um, you know, me and Chris Liss have been having a conversation about this that, that played a little bit off of a piece you did for Baseball Prospectus where you, you broke down, um, you know, how money was split and showed that it was basically 70-30 for a while in the, in the major auctions. Um, and then um, there was a discussion about whether or not that is the ideal um, split because if you look at um, the way rosters break down, rosters break down about 60-40. Yes. So somewhere between 60-40 and 70-30 is the, is the ideal split. And we had a lot of conversation about this. And one of the things that um, has happened is, you know, there's a little bit uh, more um, – you can project the top pitchers a little bit better than the pitching population as a whole. Um, and if you look to the year-to-year correlations, I'm going to have a piece on Sports on Earth uh, on this uh, on Wednesday. But if you look at the year-to-year correlations for hitting, um, hitting projections can nail them, can nail hitters at about a two-thirds rate. So they're they're projected about 6.66 year-to-year. Mm-hmm. Pitching projections are correlated about 0.5 at best. Um, so pitching, we know less about pitching. We can we we project uh, pitching less. And so I think that's why we've generally gone with a 70-30 split along with the injury factor. Um, but if, if that's not necessarily the case with the top pitchers, um, maybe they're more projectable because they, they have separated themselves talent-wise, um, then, uh, then maybe it makes sense to spend a little bit more on the top. And I, you know, that was a conversation I had with Chris Liss. I was fairly sure he was going to follow up on it, and he did. Um, where I, I stuck, I, I put a little bit more money into pitching. I, I had a 68-32 value sheet going in, um, but uh, I, I ended up sticking to my values and not um, throwing it all at the top pitchers. Yeah, he had talked about. I've heard him a couple of times on SiriusXM doing a lot of driving on Friday. He talked about it at length with um, Andrew Martinez on the Rotowire show, and, and they talked about this. And I agree with him because he said he had been playing around and, and throwing, making splits 55-45, 60-40, just to see what it what, what it did to dollar values because everybody's dollar values are typically 70-30, maybe 69-31, but that's when you're looking at public dollar values. That's pretty much what people do. So if you go out and spend the money on pitching, and as I tracked this, as I was tracking the draft online to watch and see, we'll see what people were doing, uh, you know, some of the things kind of threw me off. One of the things I talked about this morning when I was on the radio show, the fact that Danny Salazar went $18. I don't know what the reaction was in the room because I didn't listen. They were they were either on commercial or interviewing somebody else when that part happened. But the fact that Danny Salazar went 18 bucks when Sonny Gray and Alex Cobb, you know, guys with at least a little more of a track record, went cheaper than that. I, I, I like watching Salazar pitch, but, man, at 18 bucks, I want zero part of that. Yeah, I mean, my my sheet uh, had uh, – let's see here. I'm trying to get it open. Uh, my sheet had Gray – I mean, uh, Salazar at, like, uh, 13, I think. Um, and there was definitely – there wasn't necessarily uh, an uproar in, in the league when it happened, but definitely um, – yeah, I had Salazar at 14. Um, so I, I thought that was pushing Salazar, um, and uh, you know to see him go for five bucks more from that. I was in on Salazar until fourteen. Um, so I, I think you know there definitely was something that came up when we walked away from the table. 
And for what it's worth, um, you know, I, I talked with Laura Michaels after I took Sonny Gray for 17, and he thought I pushed him too hard, even though Laura Michaels and I have uh, a gentleman's agreement, uh, a gentleman's uh, wager placed upon uh, who's going to be better this year, Garrett Cole or Sonny Gray. Oh, nice. uh, and I took, I took Garrett Cole. But uh, he loves Sonny Gray, and he thought I'd pushed him too hard with 17. But, you know, I just saw, you know, that there were – I think there is um, some risk still at the top. I mean, Justin Verlander uh, is at the top. You Darvish, I think there's some injury risk there. Max Scherzer used to have a lot of injury risk before we all decided he doesn't have injury risk. So I think he does have injury risk. And I think the same thing with Chris Sale. is like we, we forgot how much we were worried about him. Um, so, and then David Price is not coming off a great year. Animal Sanchez is a labrum survivor that, that hurts that, you know, felt his shoulder barking last year. So, I, you know, and then James Shields, I see problems there. Mas, you know, Tanaka, this is my top 10. I'm going through my top 10 and I had questions for all of them. So even though my values were close to where they went, I had Darvish at 28, uh, Max Scherzer at 24. Mm-hmm. I, you know, bought those players. I just didn't feel like, you know, spending that money. And, and I took, uh, Cobb and Gray for basically what I had them for in my value sheet, and um, you know I just I felt like spreading the risk around two guys a little bit more than just getting one elite pitcher and then a bunch of guys. Yeah, but I'm well, I'm looking over the 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 order that these players were nominated in. I'm, I'm looking at the starting pitching log. Verlander was first off the board at 26. Darvish goes 38. Then Iwakuma comes up early. I had predicted 11 dollars. To uh, Tristan Cockcroft, though we were talking on Twitter, he ended up going thirteen dollars. Jared Weaver goes for eighteen. Yeah, Salazar and Weaver at the same amount. It kind of scares me. As much as I have concerns with Weaver, I, I still like the track record. I, I, there are some flags, especially with the velocity declines and such, but I feel safer with an eighteen dollar Weaver than I do with an eighteen dollar Salazar. Shields goes twenty one. Kluber goes thirteen. Tanaka nineteen. Sabathia fifteen. Sale 25, then Felix and Scherzer both go 27, Price at 23, Matt Moore at 15, Dickey 14, Lester 16, Annabelle Sanchez 21, Griffin 15, Wilson 16, and then Salazar, Cobb, Masterson right in that order after him. So it wasn't – initially when I saw the dollar value, I thought Salazar had come up later in the auction. I, he was still one of the top 20 pitchers off the board. And then yet after him, uh, Masterson 13, Straley 13, Gray to you at 17, Smiley at 12, Corona at 13. So, you know, track records be damned. A lot of these guys said, this shiny new toy, this is the kid I want. I'm sorry, Salazar went $19, not 18 And So yeah. that's where that's where guys are with him. There's like track records, now forget it, we don't care. This kid, we like what we see, and we're going to go in big on him. And I keep seeing Salazar, he's being drafted now in the top 30. It used to be he was in the mid-30s. He keeps going up and up as we get closer to the season. Yeah, and... You know, my I didn't really have a uh, philosophy or strategy as opposed to uh, when it came to, like, how I was going to build my team. I really wanted to, you know, look for the value, as people say, and I really wanted to just trust my my projections and my value sheet. And, um, you know, I've I've monkeyed with some projections on a hand level, and I pushed them a little bit, but usually not anywhere past the fans. We've talked about this before. Um, So... I feel like, to me, projections are a very good anchor, and they're a good way to, to, to pull yourself in. Um, and, um, you know, so I don't, you know, when people said to me that my team looked really young, I at first was surprised, but then I just realized that, yeah, they might be young, but uh, 
these are kind of the guys that the projection systems love. I mean, Brad Miller doesn't have a great long track record, but the projection systems all sort of agree on what he's going to do. Yeah, I love the fact that that they're in on Miller. Miller's a kid I loved last year. I had him a couple of places, and that's one of the things that stood out to me when I looked at your middle infield. You dropped you dropped sixty four dollars in your infield with Kipnis, Miller, and Brian Dozier. And was that by that's what I was going to ask you when we get to the um, strategy part here. Was that by design? That just get dictated by what you saw coming through the draft? Because I've seen some teams do this before where, where, where they will eschew things in other positions and focus on middle infield, especially in an AL and only league, because there tends not to be a lot of depth there. Not that position scarcity should scare anybody because it's not a real thing for the most part. But I, I have seen teams go in there and invest heavily up the middle, kind of forcing everybody else to react to their moves. If, I, if there was one thing that I didn't want, I did, really didn't want a dollar position player. Um, and someone said that was nonsensical because there's values of dollar anyway. But when I looked back at the dollar uh, position players, there were guys that didn't have jobs or didn't have fantasy games. Um, and, you know, this year that's Ryan Flaherty, Jeff Keppinger. Um, you know, there's some dollar catchers. Ryan Hannigan, that's a decent buy by Larry Schechter. Um, but... Uh, a dollar catcher might be a little bit different, but still, it's not. He might not even. He might not start most of the time. I mean, there's still Jose Molina there, um, and so I really kind of wanted to stay away from a dollar hitter. Um, so I, I. So that's why I didn't. Uh, I could have gone to 43 on Miguel Cabrera. That was the one sort of moment in the draft where I felt here. This is a big decision because my value sheet does say 43 for Miguel Cabrera. I it's at 42 right now. I could get him, mm-hmm. and I decided, you know what? I'd rather get a $30 player and a $10 player, you know, a $33 player and a $10 player than a than a you know 30 than a $43 player. Well, I would have had no doubt that you would have lost anyhow, because uh, no doubt that that Rick and Glenn would have gone 44 on Cabrera, because that's just that's just what they do. It would have had no doubt. Well, you're, to your point about the dollar hitter. These are the hitters that went for a dollar in the draft. Kurt Suzuki, Ryan Hannigan, Josh Belge, so three catchers so far. Abraham Almonte, who I, I think could turn a decent profit. That's one of my favorite dollar players. Yeah, I don't mind. Yeah, that's my I did like him a lot. Just, too. I think he might even you know have a, a, a big starting not a, maybe a starting role, but a big role coming out of spring. Yeah, I'm look I've got he and uh, Diane Vicieto at the same price and I have to decide on one of them as my final keeper in my home league. I'm still not sure which way I want to go. Uh Danny Valencia only qualifies at DH for right now. Craig Gentry, Lonnie Chisenhall, Ryan Flaherty, J.P. Shuck, Ichiro Suzuki, Keppinger, Scott Sizemore, and Pedro Floro. Those are your dollar players. I think of, of that mix, I like Almonte. I like Almonte. I like Craig. And I don't want to give up on Flaherty yet. I like Flaherty. He's got some decent offensive potential if he can get that playing time, as we talked way, way back when we did that team preview. But those are those are your dollar players. You mentioned wanting to go a dollar more on Miguel Cabrera. Who's somebody that you ended up going a dollar more that you rostered that you really hadn't intended on rostering? Um, I didn't really do that. Um, I guess Myers, I was uh, I was in because I liked his price, and then I was surprised to win him. Uh, but I think at 24, I'm happy with that. Um, he stacks up, I think, fairly decently as a top 12 outfielder. Um, and he comes in uh, probably the cheapest of the top 12. So um, I like that about him. And, um, you know, did I was sort of surprised that I ended up with Redick 
maybe I would have liked them for a dollar cheaper, but um, I'm going to check my number here, see what I had them at. I had them at 18. Um, so I was like, thank you. I'll, I'll pocket that. Um, there wasn't really anybody, you know, I guess Frieri was interesting because, I mean, the, the problem with me is that my value sheet never spits out the numbers that uh, closers go for. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never seen, you know, let me, I don't even, I don't even know if I can do this. I've had the same thing with that too. Every time I'm, every time I've sat down, closers are always going for more than I had thought they were going to. And I try to adjust for it. And every year they end up going for more than I thought they would. Yeah. I have, I have Greg Hahn for 12 bucks. He went for 20. So, um, I just knew that I had to pick someone that I thought would be on the cheaper end, but wouldn't have all the questions of the worst ones. So, um, I think I did okay. There was, um, I like what you did. You got Qualls, who I think will have that job out of camp. You get Frieri, who we talked about. You know, he had some epic meltdowns, but 37 of 41 last year in saves. Right, right. And I don't think Joe Smith actually, uh, is a problem because he throws, you know, uh, 89 and is a rookie. So, uh, maybe De La Rosa is a problem, but they had plenty of chances to give it to De La Rosa last year and they didn't. Um, so, you know, I, I, I kind of bought into the middle of, uh, of that closer bid. I just didn't want the very worst, and I didn't want to pay 20 for a closer. And $23 to Larry Schechter for Greg Holland, that just seems crazy to me. I, I, I don't understand that part. Your goal should be in a draft to not end up with Tommy Hunter as your closer. Right, <laughs> exactly. So uh, I did do um, – what? so I guess it's a young, it's a young roster, but – you know, as Brad Johnson said as a comment on my piece, you know, you are cho- – and you said a little bit – you are choosing problems. When you're in a, de- in a league this deep, you're kind of choosing what problems you're going to have. So the problems I choose to have are um, maybe a little bit of risk when it comes to projectability. Um, so, you know, lo- less of a track record. I-, I-, I don't mind that because I'm going to trust the projection systems and I'm going to hope that if there- – there's also the chance of variability on the positive end because they haven't really established their true talent baseline, there's a chance that these guys are better than the production system says. I mean, there's a non-zero chance that Brian Dozier does iron out the pop-up problem and does hit like 270 this Right. Time. So, I mean, I'm, I paid for him based on 240. I did not push the projection. I took 240, and I think Brian Dozier, if he's 240 in double-digit homers and steals, I don't think he's going to lose the job. I, you know, I think that's worth fourteen dollars on the middle infield. So that's that's what I, I, I actually I think it's worth more than that. But that's what I paid for. So I guess the one I pushed the most, um, I had Matt Davidson for five bucks, and I paid seven. Um, so I mean, I I I really doubt that no one ever goes like a dollar over. It, it just happens. And and the reason I had Matt Davidson for five bucks is because I have a small playing time projection for him, but. There's a thing that happens in tout in, in labor, which is that if he gets demoted, I get to keep him. Yes. So I can put it, I can I can only put him on my bench if he gets demoted. So a player like Matt Davidson is actually worth a, a couple dollars more because if he he's either going to play all full time or he's going to get demoted. I mean, he's not going to stick around to be a, a part time util guy. So uh, for me, that was like okay, uh, I'm buying his upside and I'm buying his now side, and I'm going to put him in. And, and, and Matt Dominguez, I pushed a little bit. So, you know, I'm hoping that one – I needed to get a corner infield in my util slot because if Matt, Matt Dominguez doesn't work out, I really wanted to have a backup plan. Yeah, Davidson doesn't work out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, two, 
I bought two third basemen hoping to get one out of it. And I feel like if there's any place you can go shopping during the year, it's utility. You, you can. What, what did you do in the reserve rounds to, to make up for what you weren't able to get in the active round? Well, mainly I wanted to get some high upside close arms. So um, my first pick was, was, uh, in, was burning in my head, and I was trying not to let anyone see it um, coming out of my eyes. So <laughs> I really wanted Alex Meyer. I saw him in the, in the fall league. I think he's ready. They pushed his innings uh, with the fall league. I mean, I, he's got an innings limit, but I think he'll be up um, either by a Super 2 deadline or, or to begin the year because he's really exciting. He's the only arm they have that's like that right now, that's ready, that's close, that has real nice arm upside. And uh, so I think I'll get some innings out of him, and I wanted to do that. And then, then I took some bad um, – I took some shots at some bad uh, positions. So I feel like uh, Kyle Drabeck, you know, obviously he can't control, he can't command, but um, I wanted him because there are like eight different people for the Jays this year. Yeah. And Sean uh, Markham was just buying into uh, the Cleveland fifth starter spot. So, you know, any one of those guys are droppable if they don't, you know, don't. Um, so after Alex Meyer, uh, I just wanted to buy into some back fifth starter roles, some, some places where the fifth starter is up there. So I bought Kyle Drayback and Sean Mark. No, they have their, their, their flaws, but, you know, I just figure one of them could end up the fifth starter for their team. And uh, there's a something there. in the AL4, and Kyle Drayback has some people excited about him. So I just feel like that those were uh, good buys. And, I, and I, I had spent a little bit less than, on pitching than other people, so I needed to spend a little bit more time in the reserve rounds on pitching. On the hitting side, uh, I have a Nolan Reimold weakness. <laughs> Rostered him in, in so many deep leagues over the years, and now he's like 30, and um, you know, and but, he's got eight different guys in left field to try to compete for a role. But you know, in my defense, Nolan Reimold and Dean Anna, the guys I got, they are in places where there's a question. I didn't buy a guy that was behind an established guy. I bought guy. I bought into some Mercs, you know, like, you know what? I don't know who's going to play third for the Yankees this year. And, you know, people think it's Kelly Johnson, but it, that's not, you know, and then people think second is going to be, you know, Brian, Hicks, but that, none of that's written in stone. So, Correct. Um, I'll take a, I'll, I'll put a toe in that water for, you know, zero bucks basically. And I'll put a toe in that giant, you know, Baltimore outfield um, in that situation because we don't know what's gonna, how it's going to end up. And so for the most part, you know what I felt was was really happy about after this one? After the last one, after the last draft, I felt like I was playing the what-if game a lot more. You know, my middle infielder, I paid six bucks for Chris Getz last year. Oof. And I was, oh, and I, met, I wanted to get Giovatel in the reserve rounds, and I didn't. So I was like, oh, crap. I basically am now depending on Chris Getz to, like, keep the role all year, and I knew I was in trouble there. And, um, you know, I had to play a lot of more of the what-if games, like what if this, ha- you know, this can happen. Okay, if this guy gets the starting role, then I'm all, all good, you know. Mm-hmm. All I'm what-ifing is what if Matt Davidson gets, you know, the role. If he doesn't, I have a util slot open. And, um, you know, what's going to happen in Baltimore with Bud Norris and Kevin Gossman? But I bought both of them. So I figure, like, you know, between Kevin Gossman and Bud Norris, I have one good reliever and one good starter. Yeah, it's 
we don't know what the role is going to be with Gosman. That's the frustrating thing. You know, Talent-wise, he should be up there, but it sounds like he may break the – that's the good news in labor. If he gets sent to the minor leagues, you could put him in your minors. Yeah. If he's just left in no man's land, then you have to keep him active. That's one of the things that makes um, labor rather unique is if you draft a guy and you're, and you're active 23, the only way you can send him down is if the major league team sends him down. Otherwise, you either have to play him or you have to cut him. And that's one of the reasons why you, you, the reserve roster, because you can, those guys you can move up, you can move down. But if you drafted the guy active, he has to stay active or you have to dump him or pray that he gets hurt, <laughs> which is always a nice thing. Now that you've gone through this AL-only uh, auction, any words of advice that you have for anybody else who may be going into an AL auction, say, this weekend or later on this month? Uh, you know, I think that the, your planning sheet's a big deal. Um, you, you have your values. Um, and, and don't get too excited about a player and go all nuts on a player and go over your values. Try to use those to rein yourself in. But also your planning sheet in terms of what your, uh, what your in-draft um, your, your sheet looks like uh, is important. And, and I use Excel, and what I do is I actually do map out numbers for each uh, position. But those numbers don't mean a lot to me in the draft. Like, I'm not... Oh gosh, I said I would spend 20 bucks on first base and here I am and I have Eric Hosmer at 29 bucks and I can buy him at 26. I bought Eric Hosmer at 26. I don't love Eric Hosmer, but I had him at value at 29. I could buy him at 26 and even though it said 20 on my sheet, I didn't care. The reason I have that 20 there is when I put 26 in there, I know I have to take six bucks from somewhere else. Right. And it's just, it's just a thing that helps me know you know, just in general, how much money I have left and what sort of slots I'm looking at and where I took money from and where I put it in. I mean, it's all good to do that. You have to do that. But, um, you know, for example, I know when uh, I was bidding with uh, Sean Childs on uh, Jason Kipnis, they really wanted Kipnis. Mm -hmm. And I wanted Kipnis. And 33 was the highest I'd go. Um, and maybe I pushed it a bit hard, but they were thinking about going 34 and they were really looking at me and they were mad about it. And they, you know, Sean Childs talked to me after later. He said he had to change his whole strategy after he didn't get Kipnis. <laughs> and, uh, so basically that's why they got Ellsbury at 35 because they didn't get Kipnis at 33 or at 32. Um, and, uh, that's why when you look at Sean Childs roster, that's why he has Nick Franklin and Steven Drew up the middle. Um, so, you know, that sort of thing can happen, it, you know, and Sean Childs is a very, uh, he's done this a million times and he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So what he did was he got on the fly and he moved that money from second base over to, and, and basically what he was saying was, I like Kipnis and Cano. I didn't like any other second baseman, so I wasn't going to spend money on them. And uh, so, uh, you know, do some sort of thinking like that. You know, have a little bit of planning, have a little bit of idea of what, what spots in each, in each uh, position you like. Um, and, but don't, don't fixate on a player. You know, I think that, that last year I fixated a little bit on Mike Moustakis because I thought I saw something in the projection that was. You that thought was he was weird. Eric Hosmer is why. You know, when I was looking at uh, Sean Childs and Greg Ambrosius, for those who don't know, they typically are heavy. They'll draft five or seven guys they really love and they will spend money to do that. And then they just fill it out with dollar days. They've won this league last year, or they won one of the labor leagues. They, they finish strongly every year. Sean's extremely good at day-to-day -day micromanaging of a team. And when you look at their staff, you look at the money. You mentioned the 35 on Ellsbury, 45 on Mike Trout. There's $80 in two outfielders right there. 
Oh, yeah, they also bought Brian McCann for 21. They went out and bought Pujols at 29, and that was more Sean than Greg. Greg said on the radio he didn't want anything to do with that. Tanaka is their ace at 19, Matt Moore at 15, Sabathia at 15, and then the rest of their staff is sub-$5 pitchers. Pineda, if he bounces back, not a bad buy. Paxton, we, we know what the struggles are there. Trevor Bauer at $1. You mentioned earlier about not liking dollar batters. There's value in dollar pitchers. Bauer, if he could ever get his stuff together, could be that type of guy. I mean, he was dotting 97-98 over in the Cactus League yesterday. And they said he was actually hitting the spots, which is a, which is a rare occasion for him. But if that works out for them, wow, that, that, that's good. And they got Eric Johnson, a guy with the White Sox, who is like most of the other guys, gets same-sided hitters out, struggles with opposite-handed hitters. So it's a very interesting. I could never, I just can't do that. I, I can't go into a draft and spend that much money on it, just a small handful of players and then go the rest of the way. I, it's my problem is I don't have enough confidence in my in-season management. I'm confident drafter, confident trader. It's just, you know, making those moves. I tend to, I saw you had a problem with this last year in fab too. I tend to be too conservative in fab early on. And then I end up using money later and it doesn't have the kind of effect that I was hoping it would. Yeah. And I, I tried to do the opposite last year was go really crazy in FAB at the beginning. And uh, that one blew back on me, too. So, um, yeah, you know, I don't I don't draft for balance, but I it's just a natural inclination in me to just to to want to have representative guys at every position. I have I have other than catcher, I have starters at every position and the catchers I picked, um, I felt uh, would be sort of secret starters. They'd be. Uh, at least halftime guys that would push push that into the 400 play appearance place, and I'd only spend 10 bucks on them. So I guess that the choice I made was to have iffy catchers, um, and you know I, I also saw that that uh, Ray Flowers did that last year um, and had iffy catchers and 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 you know, got third or fourth. So I felt like if I got you know better iffy catchers than he got last year because they were he bought some bad ones last year. Um, and I liked Norris and Conger. At one point in the draft, I actually knew that I had to make a decision. And, and Larry Schechter talks about uh, nominating being a uh, being a uh, a tool you can use and being a power, yes. and not to nominate too many players that you don't want to get money off the table. And I understood what he meant to, um, on Saturday because uh, I did throw a couple players I didn't want to get some money off, but it, it made immediately became clear that I needed to get more than that and get more than money on the table. What I needed to know was, can I get this player or not? You know, will I get this player at this position? Because if I can't get this player at this money, then I need to spend more money there or do something else. Mm-hmm. So um, immediately when it came to me, I threw Hank Conger, you know, I don't know, like third or fourth um, round, which was a little bit early for, you know, a catcher of his. Maybe I could have gotten him for three or two later when there was less money on the table. But I got him for four. That was less than my value, and I and then I knew, okay, I've got, I can maybe do the cheap catcher thing. And then Norris got thrown that same round, and I was like, boom, I'm good. I'm I'm happy with these guys at ten bucks. Yeah, definitely. When I look at how the, the catcher buys worked out, we talked back when we did the Angels. How I liked what I saw from Conger last year in my home league. I traded for him. I made a trade in my home league and got Jan Gomes and Hank Conger because I I had room to add keepers. The guy had multiple keepers to give up. Made the deal, and I have both my catchers. That's my catching duo in my 10-team AL home league, and, and I'm happy with that. But I've, I've gone both ways. Last year in, in Tout Wars, I drafted 
$18 Jesus Montero and a $1 Carlos Corporan. Guess which guy gave me value? The $1 catcher. Uh, because I just liked what I had seen in Corporan in spring training. And, and I've done it in the past where I spent money on Joe Maurer and a dollar catcher. And it was the year Maurer got hurt. So if you're looking, I'm not going to be that guy that ever spends $30 on my pair of catchers like Nick Minix did. We got Maurer and Brzezinski for 33 I'm going to be more in line with what you know, maybe like Brandon Funston, who got John Jason with $4 and, and Josemiel Pinto at 3 uh, maybe Jason Castro and Deanna Navarro as Perry Van Hook got for 21 bucks. That's kind of where I play. Uh, I've tended more to go where you were, about 10, 12 bucks on catchers. I said Larry spending three, you know, getting Tyler Flyers at two and Ryan Hannigan at one. Uh, surprised me because I know in the past he spent money on catchers. So I guess that just, uh, but I really like what he did with his outfield. When you look at all that playing time, Colby Raspis, Shane Victorino, Brett Gardner, Alfonso Soriano, Torrey Hunter, he has all five of his outfielders that are going to be starting, that'll be hitting fifth or higher in all of those lineups. I thought that was a really nice play by him. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice outfield. Uh, it's definitely something that I that I had an eye on. Uh, and, I, and I would just say that I like my infield. Um, it's one of the few infields that doesn't have, um, you know, a huge gaping question mark. And in the one question mark, maybe it does have Matt Dominguez. I, I backed up with some running, so... Um, you know, I, I I guess I went back to my roots a little bit. I didn't mean to going in, but my roots are that I like to spend on the infield and, and find values in the outfield. And even though David Murphy is a platoon bat and Robbie Grossman has some risk, uh, I think they'll begin the season as as outfielders. And one thing, you know, we were we were slated to talk about Josh Reddick. Um, you know, I had him for 18. I, I, I bought him for 14. So, you know, for me it was a value a value selection. Um it's it's not that I love him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, part of it is just testing the projections. And, and one of the things I didn't like was when I interviewed him, you know, he basically didn't sound like a guy who was going to adjust. Um, you know, I said, your, your swing's big. You know you're trading batting average on balls in play for power. And, you know, the, you know you know what you're, you're doing. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I know that. Um, but it's worked for me. I have a big, long swing. I can't really change it. Uh, this is who I am. And when it works, it works. Um, so I don't really love that because I'd rather hear a guy say, oh, I'm working on it or I'm doing this or whatever. Um, but the thing I think is great about him is that even though he had a terrible year, the athletics ran him out there for 440 plate appearances. Yes, they did. And some of the stuff that he didn't, and some of the time he missed was injury. So this is a guy that might've gotten 500, 550 plate appearances last year, even hitting 226. So um, I kind of think that they, the, the Athletics like what they get out of him, which is a, a, a lot of defense in the corner outfield. Mm-hmm. He stole two great highlight reel catches this spring in one, in, in one game. Um, and, and power and walk rate, but not necessarily on base percentage. So um, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't go as far as the fans to push him to 562 play appearances and 21 homers. But I basically stuck wherever Steamer is. It's 512 plate appearances, 18 homers, seven stolen bases. Hey, what, what are you talking about? That's pretty good. Yeah, so I was going to ask you when you said you had him as $18. I was like, what numbers do you have him as 18 You know, to get to 18 bucks just for me, it's the batting average. It's what holds him back. I believe in the power. I believe in the run production. I just don't know what he can hit for an average, and that's kind of where I'm uh, at with him. We talked about him back when we did the Oakland. We liked his chance to rebound because a lot of his issue last year was – 
was hurt by that wrist. And now that that appears to be healthy, he should be in good shape. Yeah, and I think something that was that I realized right around the time I bought him was that my batting average might not be great. <laughs> so uh, I was I kind of took a choice there to go with homers, and that was weird going after Calhoun, who's a little bit more of a batting average guy. Mm-hmm. But um, it's I didn't do a full punt uh, batting average, um, but and if I can hit uh, two fifty three as a team, um, I can still get four or five points in the in the category. Um, and, uh, I just figured at that point, I'd rather have that power, um, and see, you know, cause if, if Dominguez and Davidson work out, then I can trade one of them for, uh, for batting average. Yeah. You have, pl- you have plenty of power. Uh, it's just batting average and speed were my two concerns when I looked at your roster. I tried to add it up and I got around a hundred stolen bases, which is representative. It's not punting. Um, it's representative, but it's not, uh, obviously not top half. Top half is 130, 140, 150. Right. So, um, you know, I just hope to set it up where, you know, if Grossman does a little bit better than expect- expected, he, you know, he could, he could push the stone base projections if he, if he keeps the job all year. Um, and, uh, and other than that, uh, I just hope that, you know, something would work out with my pitching sleepers um, or maybe Davidson Dominguez and trade for speed. Also, um, if I if I let's say Davidson gets sent down and I have that roster slot open, um, uh, what I can hopefully do uh, with Smoke and Davidson there is move Smoke into CI and then go shopping for one of those Craig Gentry types. Mm-hmm. You know, because I feel like there's our you know not to like broadcast to my enemies, but you know Angle Angle Beltre is. is probably going to be the fourth outfielder in Texas. I don't think that – I mean, Choice will be involved, but I don't think Choice is a center fielder. So, um, you know, there are these guys that kind of – Jared Dyson maybe went reserves, but, you know, these guys that, that crop up that basically, you know, have a glove and some speed. And I feel like those guys are easier to find than anybody with real pop. So um, – I'm going to, uh, I think if I have a, a space to go shopping in, in, on offense, I'll just I'll look for uh, some speed from somebody. Uh, and then I will have a space to go shopping on pitching. Um, Derek Holland um, is, uh, is going to be an open slot for me. I'm really happy I got him for two bucks. I mean, you know, I feel like, you know, even if he comes back for only half a season or something, then that's worth two bucks. And um, mm-hmm. I like the fact that I have an open slot to go shopping. And I'll probably buy a reliever, I think, because um, my only two relievers are Frieri and and um, and uh, Qualls right now. Right. So, you know, I I uh, I feel like my goals are really small, and that's what I, I'm happy about. My goals for FAB this year are probably to find a little bit of speed in in utility, and uh, and to find like one extra pitcher. Definitely attainable. All right, man. That wraps up the uh, the AL part, and it says stay tuned. We'll blend in the uh, blend in Derek Carty's participation in the NL, and again, we'll have the team previews starting next starting on the next episode on ninety nine. So if you have any other questions about the Royals uh, and the uh, Tigers, get them in, and we will make sure that they're addressed. Uh, get thanks for tuning in, and uh, please come back for episode ninety nine. Now we welcome in Derek Carty from MLB.com, who participated in the NL Labor Auction uh, this past Sunday night. How's it going, Derek? 
Yeah, Jason, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Sorry I couldn't be out there in Arizona with you all this year. It was fun when I did it uh, two years ago, but uh, travel budget is a little limited these days. So when I have New York, Arizona, New York, Arizona, I go to New York. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, but uh, we miss you out there. <laughs> yeah, maybe next year we'll see what can happen. But I wanted to get your thoughts. We talked earlier uh, to Eno on how his AL broke down, but I wanted the listeners to hear how the NL side of things went. What were your overall impressions of how the NL labor auction broke down? Overall, the NL labor auction was kind of a weird draft. The AL kind of went as everyone expected, but coming out of the NL, everyone basically was surprised at the way it went. Very few people seemed satisfied with their teams. Um, I think it was just kind of a weird draft, especially the way um, the hitting and the pitching was split. You know, a lot of the top-tier pitchers went for much bigger bargains than everyone expected. I think four or five teams kind of issued going with closers entirely. So it kind of changed the whole the whole dynamic of everything. You know, one of the things I noticed in looking at looking at both auctions, and we talked about this with Eno, the, the hitting-pitching split was there were three more percentage points towards pitching this year than there was last season. But you guys in the NL had the exact same splits as 2013. So, but the, your point to four teams punting saves, essentially, that, that definitely would kind of skew things. I was just surprised in a year where everybody's focused on, you know, maybe there's more start, maybe there's some more benefit in spending more on starting pitching. We saw Chris List do this in the AL draft where he's, uh, was rather aggressive in acquiring a starting pitching. You guys in the NL as a whole just did the same thing you did last year. Yeah. And that is not what I expected at all. I kind of, thought I was seeing a trend of people realizing the value of top tier starting pitching. Normally, you know, owners in, in, well, in any type of league are reluctant to go over $30 on, on a top pitcher. Um, and when Kershaw got bit all the way up to 35, I was like, yeah, for sure. All the pitchers are going to go high. You know, Cliff Lee is going to be 28. Adam Wainwright's going to be 28. And that's just not what we saw after, after Kershaw went off, went off the board. It was it was definitely strange. A couple of the ones that stuck out to me, uh, you know, Michael Walker going for 16 while Shelby Miller goes to 13. The good news is they both went to the same owner in, in uh, Greg Ambrosius and Sean Childs. Personally, I view Miller better than Walker, and I know Walker went first in this, and Miller wasn't that far later. But, you know, when you look at their three of Strasburg, Waka, and Miller, and they got that, that trio for $55, there's some nice profit. Some of the other guys that stood out to me, as, I, as you mentioned, some, some of those later values – Willie Peralta at two bucks to Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf and Stacey Stern really like that grab. That was a, a really nice price when you look at what's happening. You know, Bronson Arroyo at three bucks, limited upside, but you know it's some consistency and where you get where you, for three bucks can't go wrong. Dan Heron, I was surprised he went for less than ten dollars. I know it's been a tale of two halves for him each of the past two seasons, but when he's healthy, the skills are very good. And I thought you know Dan Heron in, in my mind. And I'll only like Dan Heron's a twelve dollar pitcher, and I was surprised to see him go for just nine dollars. I agree. I had Heron, I think, at twelve or thirteen, and I think there were a few guys who kind of ended up going like that. Like I think I had Lance Lynn as like a twelve dollar player, and I got him for eight. Yeah, I had Mac Yeah, I, I definitely thought that. I'm sorry. Nine. Yeah, yeah, I definitely the Lance Lynn one. I was talking with somebody else offline about that when I looked over the results on Monday morning. I was like, you know, when you look at Lance Lynn, that's two hundred strikeouts. And, you know, in a mixed league, it's one thing. And, yes, his ratio, his wit may be a little high uh, at times, depend on his consistency. But 200 strikeouts is 200 strikeouts. And Lance Lynn's another one of those guys that I had as a double-digit pitcher, as a 10-plus dollar pitcher. So to be able to get him at eight, I thought was really nice. Yeah, I thought there were a few guys like that. Um, 
that were like twelve or thirteen dollar pitchers that went for like eight or nine. I think Bartolo Colon went for nine. I saw him as that kind of guy. Matt Garza. There, I don't know. Just things just seemed a little a little different than than I expected to see him on the pitching side this year. Let's talk about your overall strategy coming into the auction. Did you have one, or were you going to let the auction dictate what you did? Um, a little bit of both. Last year, I ended up leaving effectively probably twenty-five or thirty dollars on the table in labor, which was <laughs> not the kind of thing you want to do in an auction. Somehow, I still managed to finish third despite that. But um, this year, I was very determined to to spend all my money. So I had a more rigid budget at the top. Um, I knew I wanted to spend a certain amount of money in like the the twenty to thirty five dollar range for a certain number of players, and I was going to be flexible about who they would be. But I definitely had that planned out, so I knew I would have spent enough money early in the auction, and then I could just go bargain hunting later. Are you one of those players that that likes to set up your your uh, your player list in buckets, and then also has? I've, I've talked to some guys that'll have their players listed in tiers or buckets, and then on the other side of their sheet, they have a kind of a framework or a scaffolding of how their roster is going to be constructed. I'm going to buy a thirty dollar player. I'm going to buy a couple of twenty, and they and they have a little range of where they're going to appropriate their money. Are you one of those guys, or do you strictly work out of your player tiers and just let the roster do what do what it does? Kind of a hybrid. I don't necessarily do the bucket thing. I have just a you know a complete list of hitters and pitchers with what I think they're going to be valued at, or what I think they're they're valued at, what I think they're going to go for, um, and then based on that, I kind of identify who I think might be a bargain, and then I create a budget based on that. You know, I wanted this year. I wanted a thirty-two dollar player, a twenty-seven dollar player, a twenty-two dollar player on the hitting side, um, and then you know there's obviously wiggle room around that, but that's generally how I how I set it up so that I had some kind of idea how much money I would be spending early and then I kind of just fill it in based on based on who actually ends up being a bargain or even priced I guess at that at that value level. Gotcha. Uh when you look back at the auction, who's a player that you wish you would have gone an extra dollar on? You left the draft, you're like, you know, darn it. You know, BJ Upton, I wish I would have gone to thirteen dollars on him. Maybe I would have got him. Who's that guy for you? Um, there's a couple possibilities, but, um, I thought a lot of the corner infielders went for like really big bargains, like one Uribe, especially he was $4 and I think I had him valued at 14. I think he was the biggest bargain of the whole draft. Um, at least in my estimation and had I the chance to do it over again, I would have, I would have gotten him, but at the time I already had all my slots filled. Mm -hmm. So I, I had nothing, you know, I, I had no way to get him. You know, but that's one of the things I looked at when I was watching the – I didn't stay online through the whole draft, but I, I looked at in some of the points, and at one point in the draft, a player we'll talk about in a little bit, you had, when you had rostered Chris Johnson, he had been, he was the cheapest of all the corner guys that had gone off the board. You know, Headley was gone, Sandoval was gone, all these other guys were gone, and you had the cheapest of the third base corner guys um, at that point in the draft. And then I didn't even think about Juan Uribe, and I see that you know Steve Gardner ended up getting him at four bucks. And when you look at what Uribe did last year, even if he only gets eighty five percent of what he did last year, uh, yeah, it's still a better buy because we know he's going to start. When you look at a guy, somebody rostered Mike Olt for two dollars, a guy that I like a lot. Uh, based on his minor league track record, assuming he's fully healthy with the shoulder and the vision problem was corrected in the offseason. That said, we don't know where he's going to play. We don't know if, even if he's going to start. So you know, to be able to get a starter for 4 bucks at the end, that could be a, a two-category producer suite. 
What about a guy that you ended up winning and you wish you didn't go that extra dollar on? Um, it might sound strange, but it's Clayton Kershaw. Um, you know, at the time I thought he was a bargain. I think maybe I had him at 37 or 38. So, you know, two or $3 bargain. Um, and as I said earlier, I was expecting all the other top pitchers, you know, to be about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not what happened. I mean, Cliff Lee went for 22 and I think he's probably a five or $6 bargain. So if I could have done it over again, I would have, you know, let Kershaw go and then just, you know, picked one of the other guys, Lee or Wainwright or whoever. It, definitely, when you look at the 35 price, I mean, Kershaw is a stud. I've advocated taking him. I, somebody asked me the other day, not non auction format, but I have the fourth overall pick. Can I take Kershaw? I'm like, yeah, sure. Go ahead. I've taken him with the fifth overall pick. Um, and because after that, after that top four, it just kind of goes up in the air as where things are going to land. But the, the $35 price tag does stand out when you look at all, how all the other pitchers, especially, you know, $8 more than, than Strasburg. $12 more than Cliff Lee, but at the time when Kershaw's name comes up, I'm assuming he was one of the first five guys in, in the auction, right? Yeah, he was. So, I mean, at that point, you don't know what's going to happen. You can only guess. So, you know, you got to take your shot when you have it. Yeah, and I would say, you know, conversely, when we looked at, I believe, the AL, you know, the AL prices, some of those values were coming in early, and then there was like this big bubble in the middle where guys were going a little higher because we saw Lar Michaels sit on some money for a while, Steve Moyer sit on some money for a while, and when you do that, that's that's what usually happens, and when you have two guys do that in a 12-team league, that's going to happen. Uh, let's talk about three players that you drafted that have have been in a lot of regression discussions this offseason, Chris Johnson, Gene Segura, and, and Francisco Liriano. Johnson, obviously the high BABIP stands out. You know, and I have talked a few times on this podcast where we're not as concerned about that because of Johnson's track record on that. Segura, awesome first half, clearly looked tired in the second half. And then lastly, Liriano, historical season against lefties, but the track record, we don't know which Liriano is going to show up from year to year. What was your confidence level on rostering each of these guys? Um, it was relatively high. I mean, yeah, Chris Johnson's BABIP is going to, is going to drop, but for his career, it's not that much lower. And if you just you look at him, he's the kind of guy who can, you know, hit for a high average and for a relatively high BABIP. So, you know, I don't think. Yeah. What's going on, Jason? Uh, there we go. Sorry about that, folks. I had a phone call come in. Forgot to mute the phone. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um. No, I mean, he's not going to hit 320 again, but if he hits 280 or 290, he's still going to be, you know, I think worth what I paid for him. You know, he's going to contribute double-digit double digit home runs, you know, a fair amount of RBIs and runs. And for the price that I paid for him in a deep league like this, I think he's a little bit of a bargain. And with Segura? Segura, I like. Segura, I was actually targeting. I was hoping to get him 427, and that's what I got him for. Um I think speed is relatively scarce in the NL, and I always end up chasing speed late in the draft and overpaying for it in these kind of leagues. So I knew I wanted to get a speed guy early, and Segura kind of fit the bill because I also saw middle infielders, there being very few bargains on middle infielders, and that that played out. I mean, you see Johnny Peralta got all the way bit up to 18 at the end of the draft because because people realized there weren't going to be bargains on middle infielders, and they just needed to need to spend their money on them. So... I was happy with Segura at 27. Yeah, maybe there's some concerns about his power, but he's probably going to lead off. He's going to score a bunch of runs. He's going to hit for a high average. Mm-hmm. He's going to steal a lot of bases. So I I was very satisfied. You know, you look at, you know, Ian Desmond went for one fewer dollar at 26. That's where he was 
Everett Cabrera was a $20 shortstop. When you look just, I'm just looking at shortstop. I'm not even looking at middle infield. Uh, Chulowitzki, we know what he can do when he's healthy. The health has been an issue. He goes for $1 more than Segura. So for a price point, I was fine with the price point, but I just know so many people have looked at the first, second half split with him. To me, it just looked like it was a guy that would run out of gas by the end of the season in a first full season like that. Uh, but the speed potential is really tough to overlook with what he can bring. Um, Liriano, finally, uh, $10 price points, very fair when you compare it to uh, some of the guys. I'm looking at some of the names around him. Josh Johnson going for $9. Josh uh, Ian Kennedy going for $9. You know, those in that kind of range. Did you find Liriano to be a bargain? Did you have him projected for more? Yeah, I had him at, I think, 15 or 16, and I was very surprised when it stopped at 10, um, and I was very happy to get him. Liriano was a guy I got in labor last year in the reserve rounds, um, which I was thrilled about because part of my problem last year was prior to the Astros moving over to the national or to the American league, labor used 10 pitcher spots instead of nine. Mm -hmm. Last year, I accounted for 10 pitcher spots. Liriano was going to be my 10th that I bought in the auction. And I found out three quarters of the way through that we'd switched to nine pitchers because of the Astros. (laughs) (laughs) So I was so upset. And then Liriano fell to me in the reserve rounds and I was thrilled. Um, So I was completely buying into him last year. I, was unsurprised by what he did this year. So I'm, you know, completely on board with him with his move to the national league, you know, throwing to Russell Martin as his catcher in PNC park. Um, and you know, his stuff looked good last year. So I'm, I'm a big believer in Liriano, assuming he stays healthy. These, you mentioned the reserve rounds. Let's look at your reserve picks. For those that don't know, labor has six reserve picks. You used all six on starting pitching. Yeah. Yep. You had, Kenley Jansen is your only closer, and I believe your only reliever. When I look at you, Carlos Villanueva that would be your other reliever. Villanueva, possibly, yeah. So there, there's two relievers, seven starters, and then you spent all six picks on starters. Why? Um, the way Labor's reserve rules work is anyone you auction, anyone you buy at auction, or anyone you pick up as a free agent throughout the whole year, they have to be active for you. You cannot reserve anybody. Um, from, from those two pools. You either have to play them or you have to release them. The only players that you can move back and forth from your reserve to your starting roster are your original six reserve players. So the way I kind of take advantage of this rule is I buy one guy who's going to start the year um, you know, non-active, like on the DL or something. So this year it was Jaime Garcia. Bought him for a dollar. I'm going to put him on the DL. And then I'm going to use that ninth spot to play the matchups with my six starting pitchers. Um, so whoever is, they're all in a extreme hitters park. So whenever they're on the road against a decent, you know, a decently poor offense, they're going to be in my lineup. And I think I'm going to get a lot of value from that. That's the way I've done it the past few years. And my track record in labor has been, has been pretty good. Yeah. That's, that's the really, the interesting thing about labor that people may not know about is, you know, the roster restrictions. Those don't exist in tout wars, you know, in tout wars, we have that flexibility to do whatever we want, but labor puts that extra bit of emphasis on the draft to, to make you do that. And if you, if you could sit on that and get that through, that also gives you some depth. You're going to be looking at, you have 13 starting pitchers on your roster. Uh, so it, with four teams, essentially punting saves, eventually as one of you guys distance yourself from the other, there's going to be somebody out there that's going to be willing to trade saves and you're going to have competition looking to go get saves with four teams punting out there. So I thought it was a good strategy to be able to go out there and get that because, you know, trying to target middle relievers as potential closers is pretty much a crapshoot. The only ones that I like were already drafted in the, were already drafted in the, uh, 
the the draft anyhow. So it's not like you can go out there and say, oh, I'm going to go get that guy because, you know, Tyler Clippard for two bucks. I thought that was a nice grab by Steve Gardner because I have zero faith in Rafael Soriano lasting the season. But those are the types of guys. And, uh, you know, get J.J. Hoover with with the Reds in case they move Chapman out of the way. I saw somebody took A.J. Ramos uh, in because I have little faith in, in the Miami Marlins keeping Steve Ciszek all year. If I were them, I would trade him out there. Uh, but we'll see how that all plays out. Final thing, uh, what kind of advice would you give anybody that's going to, going into an NL auction themselves in a home league this year? I think the biggest advice I can give is don't go crazy trying to buy stars. It's nice to get a few because you have to spend your money. But don't sleep on on the guys who are going to go in like the one to ten dollar range, who you would completely ignore in a mixed league, but have a lot of value in a National League only uh, format, like Juan Uribe mm-hmm. or Juan Francisco or you know a Denny Hatchavaria. Like he's a five dollar player in National League only. Like don't don't overlook those guys just because you know you would otherwise you know you know think they suck in in a mixed league. Yeah, you definitely – when you get this deep single lead, you really have to look at those types of guys. Echeverry, I'm glad you brought that name up. That's a guy that I like for cheap speed. I saw that he went for $1 at the end. He can't hit for anything. But the bonus of playing in Miami is he's going to play. And if he can yeah. get the stolen bases – I was making having the same discussion with somebody about Emilio Bonifacio today. He may not start for the Cubs anywhere, but he can play in multiple places. And he stole 30 bases in part-time duty two years ago. So in your yeah. head, you may think – Bonifacio sucks, but stolen bases are stolen bases, even in part-time play, uh, especially at a, a date and time where it's, uh, speed and power is at a premium. It's, we're seeing fewer stolen bases, fewer home runs, so people that can specialize in those categories have some value. Uh, Derek, I want to thank you for your uh, coming on the podcast and talking about that, sharing your advice with us. Um, everybody else, we're going to pick up with the team previews starting again later on this week. We wanted to delay those so we can talk about labor here. So you heard Eno, you heard Derek. If you have any questions about what either guy said, use the comment section on the site uh, to post that. and We'll uh, interact and make sure all that's covered, and we'll pick back up with the team previews uh, this coming Thursday. Thanks for listening.